Turn our Bibles up to Genesis 22. And we want to read verses 1 through 19. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh, Yahweh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn unto the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Let us now turn our attention to Brother Tom. Good morning, everyone. Is that is that all right for volume? It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you all this morning. Genesis 22 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. I say that 
in the sense of awe, because it's hard to identify, and of course we can't fully identify, none of us can, with the command that's given forth to Abraham of Yahweh, to offer up thine only begotten son as a burnt offering. When I looked at this chapter years ago, before having children, even sons and nephews, there was a logical distance that there is no way to really identify with what that command was asking Abraham to do. It's much more poignant now, having sons and sons of that age, or getting close to that age of Isaac, and literally to think upon it deeply and what was required and what was asked, it is a, as we'll see, it's breathtaking to consider what level of faith, and that's our topic this morning, Abraham had to be able to comply with that fully, and that Yahweh knew the intent of his heart, and so that it could be said in the past tense, he offered up Isaac. And so Genesis 22 was one of the great chapters of the Bible. The implications of reach down to our own times and beyond, because it is very, very prophetic. It reveals how that faith produced works in Abraham, which permitted James to write that he was justified by the works of faith. In consequence, Abraham received an unconditional guarantee that he will inherit the promises. Now, you might remember earlier in Genesis chapter 12 that the promises had been given to Abraham conditionally or conditional based upon obedience. But now he manifested such faith in going through with this work and courage that Yahweh confirmed those promises with an oath. The promises Yahweh made to Abraham are referred to time and time again in the Bible. He is called the friend of God in James 2.23. He is referred to as the called of God in Hebrews 11.8 and Isaiah 51.2. He is called the chosen of God in Nehemiah 9 verse 7. He is referred to as the father of the faithful in Romans 4.12. And in the New Testament alone, there are over 70 references made to this great man. He is so important to the purpose of Yahweh that he is referred to in the opening verses of the New Testament, which reads, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the trial before us in Genesis 22 called upon Abraham to offer his or offer up his beloved son, Isaac. Now, Isaac is referred to as the son of promise a boy of laughter and joy, as his name signifies. And we have to pause here, because this isn't a son of numerous children from different wives. This is the son of his own loins with Sarah, and his name signifies he was a boy of joy and laughter. And Abraham was commanded to offer this son of boy and laughter, the son of promise, upon one of the mountains where Yahweh would direct him, located in the land of Moriah. Now this is where we can scarcely, but we can attempt to enter into the feelings of Abraham, if not only for a moment. 
when he received this command from Yahweh, for any parent would experience the greatest distress in putting to death a beloved child. In fact, parents would, in, would, would usually prefer to die for their children rather than see them die. Many questions arise upon first reading this account. Why did Yahweh demand this of Abraham? Was he prepared to do this knowing that his future depended upon Isaac, the promised seed, and through who that singular promised seed would come through? Would he remain faithful to Yahweh when commanded to destroy the very evidence that showed that Yahweh's promises would be fulfilled? Would Abraham be prepared to accept Yahweh's way, though he could not understand the reason and the purpose behind it? Now, brethren, this is one of the few places in the Bible, if not the most insightful passage, where the type allows us to get a glimpse into the emotions emotions of the deity regarding the great price that was paid for the redemption of those who seek his salvation. For Yahweh is a father, and Jesus Christ is his son, and Yahweh is capable of the greatest feelings For those who suffer, Yahweh would have felt for his son, as Abraham did for Isaac. Let's look at Isaiah 63 and consider verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 9. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies, and according to the multitude of his loving loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity... He redeemed them, and he bared and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. So we see a glimpse into the mercy, the pity, and the affliction that Yahweh feels for his nation's son Israel, and how much more so for his only begotten son at that time when he was sacrificed. We shall see that all the little incidents in this wonderful story are important, and they're well worth noting. For example, the word Moriah means seen of God. And we can understand how the great creator would watch with sympathy and understanding the trial of his friend. Moriah was the place where later Solomon built the temple. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, concerning which Moses said, Yahweh did choose to put his name there. From Deuteronomy 12.5. Now we are not told which of the mountains it was that Abraham was to go up and offer Isaac, but it was most likely Mount Golgotha, which in Hebrew means place of the skull, and the same meaning of Calvary in Latin, and the place where David most absolutely buried the head of Goliath. In this mountain, hundreds of years later, where Mount Zion and also Olivet reside, the Lord Jesus was put to death as a sin offering. Brother Thomas' opinion out of Elpis, Israel, is that the hill of Calvary is the very same place Abraham offered Isaac. 
In this place in the near future, it will be marked by the defeat of Go in Zechariah 14, 1 through 2, and ultimately the final destruction of sin and death in Revelation 20, verses 8 through 13. It is, therefore, a very important place and well-named Moriah, or scene of God, for the eyes of the Lord are always upon it, from Deuteronomy 11, 11. And one day, it will become the site of the capital city of the world, from Jeremiah 3.17. For Jerusalem will extend to that area, as we read in Jeremiah 31. And the Lord Jesus shall reign therein, and with him in glory will be Abraham, Isaac, and David, and other women of faith. Other men and women of faith. So what were Abraham's feelings when he received this command from Yahweh? What would be the feelings of any father for his dearly dearly beloved son? Every word of the command would be as a dagger in his heart. But Abraham was a man of deep, deep faith. It had been faith that had caused him to leave Ur of the Chaldees for the promised land, to leave everything he had known and to pick up and leave according to the call. It had been faith that had kept him in the ways of truth during his wanderings. His faith had been strengthened as he had experienced the goodness of Yahweh throughout his life. And although he knew that obedience to the command he had received would bring about the death of Isaac, he recognized that Yahweh would have to raise him from the dead in order to fulfill the promises he had made. Brothers and sisters, here is the foundational stone of our collective hope. Resurrection from the dead. It was the complete and total conviction to that belief aligned with the other prophetic blessings and promises that that singular seed would reign in a kingdom on earth. It would have land. There would be a title. There would be subjects. And there would be rule and righteous government. But it was essential that the resurrection from the dead be a pinnacle cornerstone of that understanding. It was the complete and total conviction to that belief, the assurance that Yahweh cannot lie, and that he he can swear by no one greater than himself, the two immutable things referred to and referenced in Hebrews 6, which we'll look at in just a minute, the promise and the oath. For the latter makes the former irrevocable. And we need to pause and consider the force of these promises, of which we are also heirs by baptism into Christ. These are promises given by the creator of heaven and earth, who has sworn by himself, confirmed it with an oath, in which it is impossible for him to lie. Brothers and sisters, this is the essence of our strong consolation, the anchor to our soul and our enduring comfort and joy. These are the promises that Abraham recounted and replayed in his mind at every step as he approached that mountain in which he was to offer Isaac, those long three days. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 6.
let's pick up with verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in or entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Abraham rested in the promise that Yahweh had promised that through Isaac would come the promised seed, that singular seed, Christ. And let's affirm that in Galatians 3.16. From Galatians 3.16 we read, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he saith not, and to seeds as of many, or plural, but as of one, singular, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now let's compare that with Genesis 22, verse 17. Genesis 22, 17. That in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemy. Singular. And so we have this clearly affirmed, which Moses clearly understood, that from his loins and through the son that he had received by miraculous birth, Isaac, that singular seed, Christ, must come. This is the promise that Yahweh must raise Isaac from the dead and the belief in all that Yahweh had promised that carried Abraham through this incredible trial. The Apostle Paul in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, explains this by saying, By faith Abraham... When he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten, that is of Sarah, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that Yahweh or believing that Yahweh was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a parable. Abraham fully intended to slay Isaac. But he firmly believed that Yahweh would raise him from the dead again. Because all the promises Yahweh had made him were to be accomplished in Isaac's seed. As it is written, 
My covenant will I establish with Isaac and his seed after him. Therefore said Abraham to the young men that went with him, and who he left at the base of that mountain, we, we will come again to you. That is a key insight to the faith of Abraham from Genesis 22, verse 5. But when we look at this chapter, we look at this incredible test for the correct word in the beginning of Genesis 22 is not tempt, but it is test. We look at this incredible test or trial, and we must remember that this took years of development of faith to get to this level of faith and to pass this level of trial. This is not an instant level of faith or belief that one comes to. And we can make this so unrealistic, even though it stands in that realm, if we don't consider a whole lifetime moving forward of miraculous discussion, divine education and training from the Elohim, and miraculous attestation to receive those promises. For Abraham is not Christ. That is, he did sin and fall short. And so we can look at him, as difficult as this may seem, and get closer in terms of identifying with that faith. But it was a lifelong development. Abraham being about 125 when this event took took place. So let's look and consider the development of Abraham's faith in the years of careful preparation required for this pinnacle test, the offering of Isaac. When he was called out of Ur, we remember that Abraham, called Abram at the time, was an idolater under condemnation with the world. We can see that from Joshua 24.2. He was an idolater under condemnation with the world when he received the call of Yahweh to leave that city of Ur and go into a place in which Yahweh would show him. Acts 7, verse 3. An important question needs to be asked here. Who taught Abram the truth concerning Yahweh? How did he learn about Yahweh's commandments, statutes, and laws, as it is said of him in Genesis 26, 5? Does Yahweh expect great acts of faith if one is in total ignorance and has no way to avail themselves of the commandments, statutes, and laws of Yahweh? How did Abel know what was a correct sacrifice? How was Noah a preacher of righteousness if he had no means to understand what righteousness is, what Yahweh requires, what are his commands? We need to understand that there were several and ongoing interactions through the angel of his presence, Yahweh's presence, that were moments of discussion, learning, and a relaying of what God requires. The second point, Abram, his name at the time, when his, with his father Terah, his brother Nahor, and his nephew Lot, arrive in the town of Haran, in the extreme border of Babylonia, where they remain there for a period of roughly five years until his father Terah dies. It is here that Abram hears the call of Yahweh a second time, as we can see noted in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. 
and he departs at the age of 75 across the river Euphrates to a land that Yahweh would show him. Now we see that there are promises added in this Genesis 12 account. Yahweh told Abram that if he obeyed the conditional terms of the promise, he would make of him a great nation, make his name great in the earth, bless those that bless him, and bring blessings unto all nations through Abram. Now it's important to reflect here for a moment and realize what these promises teach. These promises have not yet been fulfilled. Abram's descendants, the Jews, are not yet a great nation. Abram's name is not yet great in the earth. The true blessing that Yahweh promises those who bless Abram has not yet been fully granted, and all nations are not yet blessed through Abram, Abraham. We can see how complete was the promise that Yahweh made to Abraham. It embraced a national promise, a personal promise, a family promise, and an international promise. As such, it provided for the needs of all mankind and actually epitomizes the teaching of the whole Bible. All its doctrines, all its prophecies, all its hopes are condensed into what Yahweh promised Abram. Brother Thomas comments on this very incident by saying, quote, At this interview in Haran, the Lord said to Abram, I will make of thee a great nation, and will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Alluding to this promise, the apostle says that in making it, the gospel was preached to Abraham. The glad tidings of blessedness to the nations, when Abraham and his descendants should be great and renowned throughout all the earth. Abraham believed this gospel promissorily, announced to him by the Lord God, or in a promise. Nor was his faith inoperative. It was a living, moving faith, a faith through which he obtained a good report. By the influence of that faith, which embraces the things hoped for, it is testified that Abraham, quote, when he was called to go out into a country which he should, re- which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and went out, not knowing whither he went. For he looked for the city having foundations, whose architect and builder is God. From Hebrews 11, 8, and 10. He turned his back on Babel, and with Sarai, and his nephew Lot, and all their substance, he left his father's house, crossed the Euphrates, and then the Jordan, and entered in the land of Canaan, still traveling onward until he arrived at Shechem in the plain of Morah. Having come this far into the country, the Lord appeared to Abram to let him know that he was in the land he intended to show him, and added this remarkable promise, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. To the people of Canaan, Abram became known as Abram the Hebrew. From Genesis 14, verse 13. We often hear this word today. It's common in our vernacular. 
For the Jews have inherited this title from Abraham. But the word Hebrew really means a crosser over. Abram, at the time, was called the Hebrew by the people of Canaan because he had passed over the river into the land. Abraham became the first of many people who have crossed over from the ways of the world to the ways of Yahweh. In passing over the river, he, like those who today pass through the waters of baptism, out of Adam, into Christ. Now, our topic is the faith of Abraham. And we need to think, as best as we can, what was going through the mind of Abraham? How might these significant events combined with divine education, begin to shape this man's faith. To ruminate upon these promises delivered by the angel of Yahweh's presence would have left quite an impression. These dramatic experiences would be the building blocks of Abraham's faith to prepare him for that great act of faith many years later. But before great tests of faith can be faced, the gradual development of a saint is required. Just as the study of more difficult subject matter in the Bible and a more in-depth understanding of the Yahweh name and God manifestation are analogous to moving from milk to meat, so also is the development of a saint over the course of time if he so chooses to remain in the way. For the sake of time, we will highlight just a few more of these developmental milestones in Abraham's faith prior to that pinnacle test. We recall from Genesis 13, Yahweh's reiteration of his promises to Abraham through his angel and his command to survey and walk in the land. In Genesis 14, Abraham routes the invading coalition and rescues Lot. He receives the blessing of Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Abraham's now about 80 years old. Now, who was Melchizedek? How long did they converse with one another? What did they talk about? It's thought that Melchizedek might have been Shem, who came over in the ark. Do you think that they spent just a few silent moments exchanging blessings, or Abraham in that case receiving the blessing of Melchizedek? Or would they have stayed for a good period of time, and discussed the things of Yahweh. I think it's the latter. In reading from Genesis 15, Yahweh in a vision promises that an heir, a promised seed, will come from Abraham and Sarah. Abraham symbolically experiences his own death in this account in Genesis 15, similar to that of Daniel and the Apostle John. Yahweh in this chapter confirms ratifies his covenant between he and Abraham, passing between the animal pieces with a smoking furnace and a fire of flame. Imagine how this might affect Abraham. Imagine how it might affect you or I. In regards to these, these events in Genesis 15, the promise of an heir from his own bowels, as it says, the reiteration of the promises, The sacrificed animals ratified by the presence of Yahweh passing between the pieces. It is testified of Abraham that, quote, against hope, he believed in hope. That he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, saying, so shall thy seed be. 
and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now as good as dead, he being about a hundred years old at the birth of Isaac, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God, and being fully per- persuaded that what he had promised he was able to perform. Reading from Romans 4, 18 through 20. But we must not leave out verse 15 of Genesis 15. For in it, Yahweh tells Abraham, called Abraham or Abram at the time, that clearly he would die before receiving these promises. This is a very important element in the development of Abraham's faith. For this fact that he would die puts two diametrically opposed options before us. The first is that Yahweh has failed, and more specifically that Yahweh has lied, for Abraham died not receiving the promises. But we know, just as Abraham knew, that Yahweh cannot lie. And so we must, like Abraham, conclude what on the matter? Again, we see the absolute imperative to believe in resurrection from the dead. In promising to Abraham an everlasting possession of the land of Canaan, and nevertheless, afterwards declaring that he should die and be buried, and his posterity would be oppressed 400 years, Yahweh promised to him a resurrection to eternal life. And that is the only viable option that Abraham could conclude, for it is the only viable explanation or conclusion of the matter. If Abraham were sentenced to die, how could the promise of Yahweh concerning the land be fulfilled, unless he were raised from the dead? And as he is to possess it forever when he is raised, he must be also made incorruptible and immortal to enable him to possess it everlastingly. The promise of eternal life then consists in promising a mortal man and his son possession of a terrestrial or an on-earth kingdom or country forever. And this promise to the two, Abraham and his seed Christ, becomes a promise to all who believe and are constituted one in them. And we make just a few more other points regarding the development of Abraham's faith. The covenant of circumcision is given in Genesis 17. Consider the lessons that are contained in that act that Abraham would reflect upon. Abraham's intercession with the angels, the Elohim at Sodom and Gomorrah, petitioning for the saving of that city. He would witness then the miraculous destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He would witness with Sarah the miraculous birth of Isaac, himself being 100 years old at the time. And now at the age of about 125 years, we arrive at the place and time where Abraham is commanded to offer Isaac. Such was the manner of Abraham's faith, his mode of thinking upon the things reported to him in the word of the Lord and his disposition in relationship to them. And so pleased was Yahweh with him that, quote, he counted it to him for righteousness. Now put yourself in the mind of Abraham. Walking up to the mountain, which Yahweh had directed them to go up to, with your son of laughter and your son of joy, that promised son, And what is commanded 
that you must offer him. We have come to the pinnacle test of Abraham's faith in our concluding thoughts. At some time, while Abraham was sojourning in the land of the Philistines, Yahweh appeared to him for the purpose of putting his faith to the proof and of giving him in the person of Isaac a lively representation of what was to befall his seed, the Christ, then in the loins of Isaac, before he should be exalted to inherit Canaan in the world. The trial was a very severe one. He was commanded to take Isaac, his only son whom he loved, into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which Yahweh would direct him to. Three days later, at the foot of the mount, Abraham told the young men to wait while he and Isaac ascended it to worship, after which he said, We will come again to you. The faith building and sustaining him as he approached that long walk up and the work before him. How could Abraham say this when Yahweh had told him that he was to offer up his son? There was no ambiguity about what Yahweh commanded Abraham to do. It is because he recognized that for Yahweh to be true to his promises, he would have to raise his son to life again, and his faith was such that he was convinced that Yahweh would do so. And brethren, the lesson is for us, though I pray that we would never see such a trial as that. But we should follow the pattern of Abraham in that faith. When the moments of trial and testing come, we must rely upon a clear understanding of promises that the Almighty of heaven and earth has given and sworn by himself and it's impossible for him to lie, we must ruminate that upon times of sickness, times of trial in the world, times of unemployment, times of distress amongst brethren, times of distress amongst or between you and your spouse, times of distress between you and your children. It is the focal point and the rumination of those promises that sustain he would have to raise his son again. And he was convinced of that faith and that Yahweh would do so. Remember his years of development, the deep and the frequent rumination on the promises he had received, and what was necessitated by those promises, even resurrection from death. Because of those promises and the veracity of the one who gave them, even the creator of heaven and earth, Isaac must be raised again from death. This is the assurance that Abraham put his entire trust in. This is the core of that hope which carried him through this grievous trial. And it is the same hope and the same promises that are assured to us if we be in Christ Jesus. The resurrection from death to life. And all the other promises contained therein. Now, brothers and sisters, we need not mention, though it is useful to do so, that no one can walk in the steps of Abraham's faith who does not believe the same things. This is self-evident, and we shall inherit what we have faith in. If we have an understanding faith in the truth, we shall inherit the truth. But if we believe in what is not true, and therefore visionary, we shall inherit nothing but the whirlwind. Not only visionary as in sky kingdoms are going to heaven, but visionary in the sense of not real 
just loosely conceptual, not definable, not concrete? Do you really believe in Yahweh and what he has promised through his son and the reality of a resurrection from death to eternal life and an inheritance in that great and glorious kingdom on this earth? If so, then your faith will reflect that belief in works just as Abraham's did. Now, time does not allow us for the discussion of all the numerous and wonderful types of that promised seed that is Christ in this chapter. It's rich with all of those types and linkages. We were asked to keep our focus specifically on the faith of Abraham, and so we will stay true to that charter in these final comments. In verse 10 of Genesis 22, we read, quote, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. In making ready to slay his son, he proved the reality of his faith and revealed that it was manifested by works. James comments, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered his son upon the altar? Notice the past tense of the word offered. In verse 12, we read the phrase, For now I know that thou fearest God. Now some would render this, and I would lean towards this, that it should be read, I have known. For now, or I have known. And if you turn back to Genesis 18, I think we can see this affirmed. Genesis 18, verse 19. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. In any case, the trial has caused many others, ourselves included, to recognize the strength of Abraham's faith and to acknowledge that he was justified by works that sprung from that faith. Immediately following, a ram is provided, caught in a thicket by his horns, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh. The name signifies Yahweh will provide. The question is, what will Yahweh provide? The answer is again found in the faith of Abraham. For as he earlier declared in verse 8, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And now he is able to assert with greater assurance and meaning the antitype of that ram, which is Christ. In the mount of Yahweh, it shall be seen. What shall be seen? The antitype, or the thing itself, that is Christ himself, the antitype of that enacted by Abraham and Isaac, the apocalypse of the Lamb of God. First in tribulation, afterwards in triumph, first as a sacrifice, Afterwards, a sovereign, the mount of Yahweh is Zion. And Abraham saw that coming day of victory and was glad. Lastly, we see the second call of the angel from heaven, the angel of Yahweh from heaven to Abraham, stating the promises once sent forth or set forth conditionally, but now set forth unconditionally. I will bless thee. Such was the faith of Abraham, and such must be the faith of all who would inherit with him. In conclusion, I would direct your attention to the fact that Abraham was the subject of a twofold justification, as it were. 
First, of a justification by faith, and secondly, of a justification by works. Paul says that he was justified by faith, and James that he was justified by works, and they are both right. As a sinner, he was justified from past sins when his faith was counted to him for righteousness. As a saint, he was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. The scriptures say that through Jesus is now preached the remission of sins to those who believe the gospel of the kingdom and that justification by faith is through his name. That is, God has appointed an institution through which remission of sins is communicated to believers of the things of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ by putting on the name of Christ. Now there is but one way for a believer of the gospel to get at this name. To wit, by being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The answer to the question then is this. That a man's faith in the gospel is counted to him for righteousness in the act of being baptized into the name. There is no other way than this. And even a believer of the truth will die in his sins unless he submit to it. If a man believe, is baptized, and obey the gospel, his past sins are forgiven in Christ. But if after this he walk in the course of the world, his faith is proven to be dead, and he forfeits his title to eternal life. But if, on the other hand, a man become an adopted son of Abraham, and by a patient continuance in well-doing, seek for glory, honor, and incorruptibility, he will find everlasting life in the paradise of Yahweh.